You may have noticed while we were singing that a couple of people came up and talked to me and they reminded us of our need to pray for Dave Morrow, who really isn't doing very well. Appreciate the fact that you lift him up in prayer and will continue to lift him up in prayer. And Craig is uh, in a hospital in Kauai, looking at the palm trees through a hospital room probably. Uh, he has an infected gallbladder and there's possibility that he might be uh, operated on to take it out or whatever they do. I know Sandy had that operation too, so it's no uh, picnic, that's for sure. So let's uh, go to the Lord, Lord in prayer right now. Father, thank you so much for your love and your care, and thank you that you watch over us. You know every detail, even before there's a thought in our minds or a a word on our tongue or an action in our bodies, Lord, you know it. And God, we uh, just lift up the morrows to you, the whole family. We just pray, Lord, that you would just give them uh, the peace that passes all understanding to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray for Craig and Amanda as they're on a vacation, which is obviously turning into a little bit of an ordeal. And uh, we just pray that you would Keep Craig safe, that you'd give the doctors wisdom as to what to do and how to do it. And uh, we just love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you that we can look at the Psalms and be encouraged. We can be challenged. We can be uh, encouraged to walk uprightly and circumspectly before you. And Lord, that's the desire of our heart that we would, as Peter said, that we would, if we practice these things, we will not stumble. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to turn to Psalms chapter 15, or Psalms 15. <laughs> it's hard not to get the chapter thing out of your head, but uh, I want to start in Psalms 14, and I want you to see the contrast between these two Psalms as we begin, but we'll be looking really at Psalms 15 for the duration, but I want to begin in Psalms 14, verses 1 through 6. David is musing, he's thinking about the condition of the world, and he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. A lot of people have said, the fool says in his heart, no God, <laughs> N-O. He just says no to God, even though the evidence is overwhelming for God, and says they're corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one, not one, who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation who would put shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. And after reading that, you're not too enamored with men and their ability to be righteous, but then he says in Chapter 15, Psalms 15, he says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. He does 
nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest or usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will not be shaken. Now, as David does so often in the Psalms, here he contrasts the godly with the wicked, the righteous with the unrighteous, those who know and live the truth with those who don't, and those who know and love God with those who reject God. The contrast is just stark. It's at the opposite extremes. And in that regard, these psalms stand in stark contrast to one another. Psalms 14 paints a picture of the, the fool who says in his heart there is no God and, and who has no comprehension of spiritual truth, whereas Psalms 15 shows us the life of a person who knows God and because he chooses to follow his, in obedience to his word, his life is unshakable. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Especially here in California <laughs> when we experience earthquakes. And, uh, but his life is unshakable. The foundation is firm. It's, it's there. It's not going to go away. And uh, He uh, is not moved. The King James says he shall never be moved. You know, the godly person will feel the tremors and earthquakes of this life, but when all is said and done, he is still standing. He's unmoved. He's unshakable. He faces life, and he goes through life, and when it's all over, he's still standing. Stand firm in the Lord, Ephesians 6 tells us. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That is this man that is being described here, and he is going through all the troubles of life. David had many troubles, but in the end, he was standing, wasn't he? He was unshakable. His life was right with God. He was a man after God's own heart. Listen to Jesus' words. You can turn there if you like, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he describes an unshakable person in very graphic, metaphorical terms. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it has been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not act on them will be like a fool, a foolish man, who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. What a contrast man who builds his house on the rock of God's Word, on the rock who is Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4. The storms of life assault him and blow against him, and the floods rage around him. And yet he stands. He's still holding firm. He's unshakable. The fool builds on the sand, and as we've seen with the hurricanes along the, the East Coast, the house is gone. Why? because he's headed towards eternal destruction, because God in his word is not his foundation. So this morning I want to talk about the unshakable life, the kind of life that will not be moved out of its place. 
by the trials and storms of life that will come our way. You know, Jesus said, this is his promise in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might have tribulation. If you live long enough, you're going to have it. <laughs> you're going to have problems. You're going to face financial reversal. You're going to face health problems. You're going to face all kinds of problems, marital problems that you're going to have to work through, problems with kids, and, you know, just on and on and on it goes. Life is problems. And then there are those great periods in between the problems that we revel in and wish life would always be like that, right? Well, that's heaven. And it'll be that way sooner than we think. But the man who lives like this, like what we're going to talk about, stands. His faith and trust and belief in God is unmoved by the storms of life. Now, to do that, we're going to look at 12 principles that the Holy Spirit, through David, says are to characterize the godly person. Half of them are positives and half of them are negatives. Half of them are things we are to do, half of them are things we're not to do. And that'll reveal itself as we go through here. So, but before we do that, David has us consider what is perhaps the greatest question of all time. He says, O oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? That's a good question. Who's going to make it to heaven and who's going to hell, basically? Who may abide in your tent? Who may live on your holy hill? Now, in an Old Testament sense, this refers to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God met with Moses and Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Uh, because remember, David is writing pre-temple. David would be the one to gather all the, the stuff for the temple, but he was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. Solomon, who was a man of peace and, and fabulously rich because of David, uh, would build the temple. But David is here talking pre-temple. God's holy mountain or hill is Mount Zion where the city of God, Jerusalem, is, and from which Christ will reign for a thousand years in a period of time we know as the millennium, and he will reign from Jerusalem after he comes with power and great glory at the second coming and ends the battle of Armageddon with a word, the sword of his mouth. So basically what David is saying is, God, who can abide, who can live, who can dwell, who can make their home in your presence? It's a good question. Who can live in the presence of God? How do we live in the presence of God? And the answer is, the one who believes God and is accounted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, that was Abraham. He believed God, he followed God, he did what God said for the most part. And he was saved by grace, even in an Old Testament sense. The answer is the one who hears the word of God and who acts upon it, building his house on the rock of God's word and the rock who is Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.4 tells us. You've got to build it on the sound, solid foundation of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the answer is also in Titus. I want to read Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. This pretty much sums it up. He says, 
For we also once were foolish ourselves. We were all fools prior to coming to Christ. We had said in our heart there is no God or we don't know God or I don't know if God exists or, or how can there be a God in this world and all the bad things that happen. Because there is a God of this world, little g, Satan. He makes awful things happen. But he says, We are foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Isn't that our world? Doesn't it describe our world? I mean, people just hate each other. I don't know why. Well, I do know why, but it's obvious that we don't get along very well in our world, isn't it? On a personal level or on a national level or on a social level or on a world level, we're not getting along real good, are we? It's because we hate, we're hateful, we hate one another. And then he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You're not saved by your good life. You know, you may be a good sinner and you may be a horrible sinner, a wicked, evil, ugly sinner, but you're still a sinner for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's the condition of all men. That's why Christ had to die for the sins of the world. And all who believe and put their trust in him are saved, right? And he says he saved us not on the basis of those deeds, but uh, by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. When we talk about being born again. That's what being born again is, regeneration. It's bringing what was dead to life. And then he says, and renewing, that's the whole process of sanctification. And how was that done? By the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Not just, he didn't just give us a little dose of the Holy Spirit, but the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5. And then he says, upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified, how? By his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then he says this, and this is how I want to tie it in. He says, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful, what? To engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. It's not just a word game. It's not just, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then I live any, I got my fire insurance, and I live any old way I want. It's, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and because I love Jesus, and I'm living for him, and because I'm saved by his grace and mercy at the cross and the resurrection, I'm going to be careful to engage in good deeds and live a righteous life to honor him. That's the point. It's not that we just get saved and then we go off and live worldly. That's not the point. And that's what David is bringing out in this psalm very clearly. You see, people are all, have always been saved by the grace and mercy of God, but the assurance of our salvation, whether Old or New Testament, is that we are careful to engage in good deeds and live a righteous life. You see, good deeds don't save us. Our faith and belief and trust in God the Father, Christ the Savior, and the Spirit of God the Sanctifier does that, but 
they do form the basis of an unmovable, unshakable life that's marked by the blessed assurance of God's favor on our lives. You know, it's righteous living that creates assurance, isn't it? You know, we preach once saved, always saved, but I tell you, when you get in a funk and you start living worldly life, that assurance just goes right down the drain, doesn't it? It's like, man, what happened to me? Am I really saved? What's going on here? And then you go back to the Word of God and you go, yeah, I'm saved by grace, not by my works. But you know what? I need to be careful to engage in good works. And that's the point David is making here. So with that in view, let's look at these 12 characteristics David mentions. The picture for us, the person that would walk with God and dwell in his presence thus having his blessed assurance on his life, okay? First of all, verse 2, he walks or lives a life of integrity. The King James says he walks uprightly. There's nothing crooked, nothing questionable in his life. He's solidly committed to God and to his truth. The word integrity connotes a firm adherence to a code or a standard of values just in a normal sense, which... For a believer, that would be we're committed to the principles of the Word of God to live like God has asked us to live because we belong to Him. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's what God said to the cruddy Corinthians. hate to say that, but they were. They had every problem imaginable in the church. Even had a guy that was stepping out with his husband, his father's new bride. You know that's pretty sick. And Paul says, "You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. So live for Him. Be careful to engage in good works, not evil ones." He walks in integrity, sound. He's unimpaired by the sinful values and practices of this world. He's a solidly, biblically principled person. Or she is a solidly, biblically principled person. (laughs) He's undivided in his practices and his priorities. God's word is at the heart of all he does and says. Simply put, he's a man who lives, loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who walks according to his word. That's the point. And secondly, he's a man who works righteousness, verse 2. The basic meaning of the word here is that this is a person who will not deviate from what is fair and right. They're not into situation ethics. The circumstance and situation does not dictate their response, but the truth and wisdom of God's word does. It's not, well... Gosh, it seems reasonable that I would do this, right? Because here's the circumstances, and, and, and uh, you know, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing in defiance of God's Word. That's not the way he thinks, or she thinks. They think, I'm going to do this because this is what God says, and if it costs me, it's the way it goes. We've had a lot of situations like that where people try to justify sin because of the circumstance. That's not the godly person. This has literally hundreds of applications. You know, I hear so often 
follow your heart or what is your heart telling you? Any movie you watch, you see that line in it somewhere. Oh, you got to love yourself, you know. Uh, well, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked or sick. Who can understand it? But then he says, but I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. In other words, to the man who is willing to live righteous, God puts it in his heart to follow his word. In other words, if you want to live righteously, do what God says and don't follow your sinful heart. Follow God's word. God's word always takes precedence over your sinful mind and heart if it's contrary to God's word. Correct? And that's the third characteristic of an unshakable life. He speaks truth in his heart. Now, I don't know if that means he speaks truth to his heart or truth in his heart or he speaks truth from his heart, probably all three. But what he is saying is that the unshakable person's heart has been transformed by the truth of God's word, and when he speaks, and when he counsels, and when he acts, what has gripped and transformed his formerly wicked heart now dictates what he says and what he does. That's called transformation. No longer do I go by what my heart says or my feelings says or whatever. You know, there's, there's a great place for your heart and feelings and all that, but it's governed by God's word, not by you, your flesh. And that's the important thing, that it's governed by God's Word. Psalms 119, 70 through 72 says of the wicked, their heart is covered with fat. It's an interesting statement. It doesn't mean that wicked people are fat. You know, you can have a slim, trim, you know, unwicked person, right? But what they're talking about is they're just covered with the goop and junk of this world and can't comprehend spiritual truth. Their heart is just cut. It's desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says. But then he goes on to say this, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You know, God's got a purpose in all the things that go on in our life, whether they be good or bad or terrible trials or just great joys, right? God's always got a purpose, and, and he's teaching something to our inner man, our spirit. Our spirit is being transformed by the Holy Spirit as we look into the Word, and we see all the things we're facing in life, and, and God uses that to transform us and mold us and shape us, and he'll do that to the day we die. That's a scary prospect, at least for me, but you know, you'd think you'd get to a point where you'd go, oh, you know, can't I just float along? It doesn't work that way, does it? You know, it seems like the more you live, the more of life you actually have to live. And uh, it kind of gets to you. But there is a purpose in it. I was, he says he was blessed by his afflictions because he learned God's statutes. He says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. You know, it's the intangibles of life that really make life what it is. You know, we see rich, famous people committing suicide all the time. 
Why? They seem to have everything this world has to offer. Why take yourself out when you got all that? Well, because there's nothing going on in here. There's a blank, empty spot that just cannot be lived with. But for we as Christians who our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit, we can face even the worst tragedies. I've been reading uh, the book Jesus Freaks about Christian martyrs and some of those things, what they went through, most people would be screaming for mercy. And they would just claim, I'm a follower of Christ. Do what you want to me. And in most cases, they did do what they wanted to them. And they were promoted to heaven through that. Now, because God's truth has transformed his heart, verse 3 tells us, fourthly, the unshakable person does not slander with his tongue. The word can mean to be a tail-bearer, a backbiter, a slanderer, a false accuser, in a word, a liar. That kind of characterizes our world, doesn't it? Don't you just get tired of being lied to? You know, even if the truth is hard to hear, I'd rather hear the truth than just constantly being lied to. It's disturbing. And you and I are never more like Satan... John 8.44 tells us then when we lie about and slander the character of another person. In fact, Revelation 12.10 tells us Satan stands before the throne of God accusing the brethren, slandering the brethren night and day. But fortunately, 1 John 2.1 says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's as if Christ is at heaven's throne as our our. Uh, defense attorney and Satan will bring up, well, did you see what that bum did or what she did? And, and Christ goes, I've already paid for that with my blood. That person's covered. Sure, they messed up, but I'm still working on them and they're still becoming what I want them to be and, and they will to the day I die and they're transformed to glory and then we won't have to worry about it, but what a wonderful thing to have a defense attorney because Satan is up there night and day accusing the brethren and the cistern. Right? James 3.8 tells us, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. That about describes that little thing that's in our mouth, isn't it? A restless evil, just ready to jump on anything we can get our lips on, right? And ready to pass on anything that's juicy and that little morsel that goes down like an oyster. You know, we're uh, it's full of deadly poison. That being said, the person who would not be shaken will make the Herculean attempt to tame the tongue. And for most of us, myself included, it's a full-time job. Right? Watching what you say and not saying. There's so many ways to say things that are just wrong. We need to really be thinking about that. Now that being said, number five, not only does the unshakable person not badmouth others, he doesn't do evil to his neighbor, verse 3. 
In fact, we as Christians are to do good to our neighbor. In fact, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, we're to treat them as we would want them to treat us. You say, but you don't know my neighbor, right? You don't have to live next to this bum or across the street from this person and this family. They're like, ugh, the monsters. Maybe I'm dating myself with that, but, you know, know, I've got my own to deal with. And God tells me not to do them any evil, but instead to, I'm to love them as Christ loves them and, and figure out ways I can express that love in practical ways. And you can be creative in this, right? You can look out for opportunities to help, even you may get shunned, but give it a shot. You know, how can you make a inroads into your neighbor's life in a loving, caring kind of way? You know, we got to be creative. We've got to be thinking in that regard. And, and, you know, if it were something easy to do, our world wouldn't be in the horrible condition it's in. Right? You know, people just love their neighbor. Uh, loving others is not easy. <laughs> you know, think of the Good Samaritan, the interchange that takes place between Jesus and, and the scribe. And the scribe asked him, what are the great commandments? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Then it says, and wishing to justify himself, the scribe goes, and who's my neighbor? Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, which if you were a Jew, would have been about the worst thing you could ever hear about who your neighbor is. Because Jews and Samaritans hated each other because the Jewish Samaria had, uh, anywhere, intermarried and and started producing half Jew and half whatever, and they were called Samaritans. They had forsaken the, the religion of Judaism and so on and so forth. And so he gives this parable. A guy gets beat up, a Jewish guy gets beat up, thrown in a ditch, and, and uh, a priest and a Levite both walk by, and they go by on what side of the street? The other side, because they didn't want to, if this guy happened to be dead, he probably was at least unconscious. This guy happened to be dead if they go near a dead body seven days of uncleanliness, and who knows what they had to do in those seven days. It wasn't worth it to spare somebody's life or to help somebody's life or bandage this guy up and get him to the right place. Seven days of inconvenience would be too much to be a neighbor to this guy, even though he's a fellow Jew. So the Samaritan comes along, and remember, they didn't like each other, He sees the guy, goes over there, binds his wounds, takes him to an inn, and pays for his room and board there until he got better. And Jesus goes, who do you think proved to be a neighbor to that man? The ones who should have been? Or the guy who shouldn't have been? (laughs) You know, it makes you really think about uh, who my neighbor is. And that's evident in our sixth principle. The unshakable person doesn't take up a reproach against the friend. Notice he starts with neighbor, now he's with friend. You see, the problem is not only do we have a hard time getting along with those who are hard to get along with, but we seem to have a hard time getting along with those we should be able to get along with. Like relatives. Anybody have a problem with any relatives? Uh, friends, people in the church, fellow citizens, 
neighbors, doctors, wives, husbands, children, parents, and I could go on and on. Beware of taking up a a approach, a reproach. Beware of pointing the finger and blaming others. It could rock your world, and it may be the reason your world is rocked. Maybe we need to go and ask forgiveness to somebody who's close to us, who we love, a, a child, a friend, a, a neighbor, a person in the church. Maybe we need to make that thing right before we offer up our praise and worship to God. You know, maybe we need to get things right in the family, whether it be your natural family or, or the church family. That may be why your world is is rocked in an emotional, spiritual sense. And seventh, you need someone, if you need someone to reproach or despise, despise the reprobate, verse 4. One destined to eternal damnation, but that said, hate the sin, love the sinner as best you can. You know, Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's love, and that's how we're to love. We're to love those who are reprobate and at the same time not condone their reprobateness. Is that a word? Anyway, sounds good. Rep- reprobateness. <laughs> we are even commanded to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5. Even though we would not condone or promote what they do, and they are eternally damned for what they believe and consequently what they do, but pray for them, love them, share the gospel with them, but despise what they do and what they promote and the wickedness they condone. We are to be in the world, but not of it. And the proper response to those who are living reprobate lives is to love them as Christ loves them, because that's how he loved us. He gave his life for us, and while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we need to communicate that rather than just communicating hate towards those who don't believe what the Bible says. If you're doing that, you're not doing it right. We need to stand firm on the word of God, and we need to stand firm on the fact that we are to love all men with the goal of leading them to the good news. The gospel is great news, isn't it? Anybody can be saved. The only sin that can't be forgiven in John chapter 12 is the sin of unbelief. That's it. Man dies in his unbelief, he dies condemned. But any point up to that point, I remember Howie Hendricks, professor at Dallas Seminary, was sharing he prayed for his reprobate dad for 43 years, and on his death week, deathbed, he accepted Christ as his Savior. Remember Ty Cobb sharing the same thing. Said he got in the game late, but he got there. But, uh, you know, the thief on the cross. Reprobate life, but Christ loved him into the kingdom at that moment. So that can happen. We don't give up on people just because they don't live the way we would have them live according to the word of God. But then eighth, honor those who fear the Lord, verse 4. David tells us to honor, elevate, lift up, exalt those who fear the Lord. The term in Old Testament usage came to mean God-fearers. In New Testament terms, we might say they are people who 
so love the Lord and obey His words so that 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that whether they eat or drink or whatever they do, they do all to the glory of God. That's a God fear. We do what we do to the glory of God, whether it's just eating or something as mundane as drinking or whatever we do. It's all to honor God by the way we live. And that's a God-fearer. Holy Spirit tells us through David we need to honor these kinds of people and not exalt the perverse of our society. You know, it seems like we, we have so many... Well, now we have superheroes. They're not just heroes anymore, but they're superheroes. And we're teaching our kids to honor them and, oh, just want to be like Catwoman or Cockroach Man or whatever. And, you know, they'll come up with something new as soon as the superhero stuff gets mundane. They'll come up with new superheroes. In fact, they are. Uh, those are not our heroes. Our heroes should be godly people who we know and admire, godly men and women who lift up the Lord Jesus and lift up the Word of God, and we should teach our children to honor and love and exalt those kind of people and pattern their lives after them, not getting on the body armor and going in and blasting somebody. <clears throat> I'm always amazed, you know, when... You ever notice when the, the hero is chasing somebody in one of those car things? You realize how many people they kill while they're chasing the other person? Total disregard for life. Total disregard. You could count them on both hands by the time the chase is over, or maybe you have to take off your shoes and count your feet. But by the time they're done, they've killed about 20, 30 people with all the different accidents. But they caught the bad guy. Wow. Now, who really is the bad guy? What are we teaching our kids by this kind of stuff? You know, it's just... Anyway, that's one of my hobby horses. I like action movies too, but uh, you need to watch them with discernment. Honor those who honor God and lift them up as heroes in your family and to your children. The ninth, the unshakable person swears to his own hurt, verse 4. He's a man of his word. He's a man of truth. What he says he will do and he will carry through on it. Obviously, that's no longer our society. What, what used to be accomplished with a handshake now takes three months and a foot-tall stack of papers. If you bought a house recently or tried to get a loan lately, you know that. I mean, by the time you're done, you sign that Jim Foster <laughs> dealing with the state board for uh, Hillview Waters probably went through a stack of papers that high to get a loan. And uh, that's the way it is. Nobody trusts anybody in our society anymore. It used to be 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you could just shake on it and sell somebody your house without much trouble. But not so the godly person. That's because 10th, the unshakable person, swears to his own hurt. And what does not change? You see, words can be cheap. People lie through their teeth. Hell, Revelation 22:15 will be populated, it says, with everyone who loved and practiced lying. 
which is basically our world. It's basically the way we've chosen to live. I think some people today would rather hear lies than hear the truth. Truth demands something. The truth hurts oftentimes to hear it because it confronts our life. But being lied to and you're okay about this and that and everything under the sun, you can you know, do any deviant, perverse thing you want to do, and it's okay because it's legal. When did we ever get to that point? Just because something legal doesn't make it right. To take lives to be a deviant is not right in any society, but we have legalized it to make it okay. Right is wrong, as Isaiah says, and wrong is right. Not so the godly person. He does not change. John 8.44 tells us Satan is a liar, the father of lies. It tells us he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. But God's people, those who are God-fearers, stand in the truth. They stand by their word. They do not renege on a promise, even when it proves to be not to their benefit. You ever made a promise and then you thought, oh man, how did I get myself into this? But you carried through on it. And then God brought amazing good out of that whole situation. You know, there's numerous examples of that in Scripture. Remember Israel when the Gibeon came to them and they all wore their ratty clothes and, and this stale bread. And they said, we're, we're in a distant country. We're not in your land, but we know your fame and we want to you know, make peace with you, and they did that, they vowed to do that, and then they found out they were in their land. And Israel put them to forced labor, but they didn't kill them. How about the three Hebrew boys? They're on the plains of Dura, Nebuchadnezzar's put up this ugly statue, and everybody got a big band together, and uh, the first rock band in the Bible, but, you know... And they're all supposed to worship this thing on the plains of Dura, and three Hebrew boys are standing. So Nebuchadnezzar was, they got ratted out, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, brought him before him. He says, well, I'm going to give you a second chance if you, uh, you know, when the band strikes up, and if you bow down, and we're, they just said, no, we're not changing for you or anything. Throw us in the fire. We don't care. Our God will deliver us one way or the other. And just so, it, because God was being miraculous and gracious and amazing that day, he spared them, and one like the Son of God walked in the furnace with them. Probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, was confronted with his sinfulness, and, and uh, you know, I believe we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Daniel, same thing. King gets flattered by his lying prefects. And they say, oh, king, pass an edict that nobody can worship anybody but you. I mean, who can resist that? Oh, worship me. Aren't I wonderful? And uh, Daniel just goes, no way. He kept praying three times a day to his, the true God towards Jerusalem. So they come, they, know, they knew he would be there, so they came and got him and got thrown in the lion's den, and God spared him again. 
We have numerous examples of those who would not change. The godly person does not change to accommodate the world. He doesn't change the word of God to accommodate the world. Now, 11th, <clears throat> the unshakable person does not put out their money at usury or interest. And this doesn't mean you don't do wise investments and you don't do business properly. But what he's talking about in an in a Old Testament sense, they, they didn't put out their money at interest. And in the context, David is talking about fellow Israelites who might be needing a loan, a poor tradesman, a struggling farmer, an orphan, a widow. The unshakable person does not take advantage of the misery of other people. You know, I heard in a movie one time that there's all, there's much profit in misery. And that's true. You can take advantage of people. You know, you give them the 25% loan and, you know, they end up spending the rest of their life paying it off just to pay the interest. But the godly person does not take advantage of the downcast. That's because, lastly, he's not corrupt. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. He doesn't profit by corrupting others. He does business and he leads and governs in an honest and upright fashion. No matter what everyone else is doing, he stands apart from the crowd. He's genuinely honest. He's uncorruptible because God's word is his standard. Okay? So there you have it. The unshakable life begins with a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ because no person can live this kind of life apart from the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's impossible to live like this because there will always be a situation where you can come up and go, yeah, you know, I can uh, tweak this a little bit and do that and do this and do that and, and come out smelling like a rose. Whereas if you did what God told you to do, it might not smell so good, but it would be right. Not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. And the Spirit's transforming power will manifest itself in integrity and righteousness and a heart of truth and a bridled tongue and Christ-like love for our neighbors and friends. And we will grow to hate sin and evil as God hates it and honor those who are godly, and we will shun greed and corruption in our lives. Because the person who practices these things in the power of God's Spirit, in obedience to the Word of God, will never be moved. They will not be shaken. Or as the New American Standard says in 2 Peter 1, it says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of God our Savior, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. You know, that's blessed assurance, isn't it? When you live like what we've just described, you're on your way to heaven and you really know it. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, I accepted Jesus when I was three. And, you know, I haven't seen much fruit since and I haven't really gotten to it. Uh, there's not much assurance there. But when you live like this, and you live a principled, godly life according to the Word of God, 
Even though you're saved by grace, if you're careful to engage in good deeds, there's that assurance that comes with that that your entrance into the eternal kingdom is abundantly supplied. It's not a matter of guesswork or worry. 